The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. I'm Vince Rocco, your host. You are listening to Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, March 7th. My God, March 7th. And I'd like to welcome our listeners from the United States and around the world. If you want to call into the program this morning, you can use the number one 472 That's one 472 We have a great show today and lots to talk about, so let's get to it. A few very pricey homes are on the market around the United States. In East Hampton, New York, for example, on a recent afternoon, Sally Quinn, the journalist, walked through her Grey Gardens Uh, mansion, the fabled summer home, one that has been the subject of both a documentary film and a Broadway musical, and passed by a glass menagerie of tiny kittens. The figurines had once belonged to Edith Bovier Beale, better known as Little Edie, a woman of many cats who for years lived in the house with her mother known as Big Edie. Both were former socialites and relatives of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. The figurines were among the many artifacts that Ms. Quinn kept when she bought the house from the younger Ms. Beale in 1979, she paid $220,000 for the house on the ocean in East Hampton for what was then a place of almost unimaginable squalor. Uh, restoring the house was not for the faint of heart, but Miss Quinn was undeterred. The home was long ago restored to its old mansion's uh, Hampton's charm and cleared of all cat smells. It is a house that, even in the wintertime, is vibrant. Miss Quinn recently put a price tag on the house because she's uh, planning to leave the Hamptons and leave uh, Grey Gardens. She has listed it for $19.995 million. In Los Angeles, Thomas Barrett Jr., chief executive of private equity firm Colony Capital and a close friend of President Donald Trump, is building a hideaway above the Bel Air Country Club in Los Angeles. The former Miramax chairman who organized Trump's inauguration events filed plans to construct a 77,000-square-foot estate with a guest house and staff quarters. This according to Curbed. Recent aerial photos show that construction on the giant house is already underway. Controversial architect Peter Marino is designing the home, uh, which will also have a pool, a cabana, and a tennis pavilion. According to planning documents, Barrick bought the property in 2010 for $35 million. And finally, at... Uh, $250 million, a new mega mansion in the exclusive Bel Air neighborhood of Los Angeles is the most expensive house listed in the United States. The passion project of developer and handbag tycoon Bruce Makowski, the four-level, 38,000-square-foot mansion is being built on spec, and it includes 12 bedroom suites, 21 bathrooms, five bars, three gourmet kitchens, a spa, an 85-foot infinity swimming pool with stunning views of Los Angeles. There's also a 40-seat uh, movie theater, a bowling alley, and a fleet of exotic and vintage cars worth $30 million that come with the house. According to Mikowski, 
only 3,000 people in the world can afford to buy this. Can you imagine that statement? Only 3,000 people in this world can afford to buy that home. And who would want to? $250 million. Well, we're going to get to that. (laughs) My special um, call-in guest today uh, is Denise Rosner. She is on the phone from Los Angeles. It is 6 o'clock in the morning. She is an agent with Keller Williams in Beverly Hills and in New York City. Uh, After conquering... Oh, wrong one. Um... Yeah, well, I don't have that anymore. Anyway, she currently works for... <laughs> I lost we love some, her. I lost something here. Anyway, after uh, working for many years here in New York City, she's gone back to Los Angeles where she is doing extremely well. She sells uh, luxury real estate, and she's got a clientele that is unbelievable. Good morning, Denise. How are you? Good morning, Vince. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So you heard the story, $250 million spec house in uh, Bel Air, very fancy neighborhood in uh, it's Los remarkable. Angeles. I, I guess it is. But so I, I want to ask you, um, as the luxury real estate maven that you are in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, who would be the potential buyers of this house in, in the Los Angeles neighborhood, in the Bel Air neighborhood, rather? Well, you know, my guess is that it isn't going to be somebody who, uh, who hails from Los Angeles. I believe it would be uh, a foreigner, it would be a royal family, perhaps uh, Saudi royals. It might be a billionaire tycoon from somewhere around the world uh, who's already amassed perhaps a $100 million yacht and multiple houses around the world, uh, you know, maybe homes in London, Dubai, etc. Uh, really a very, very small echelon of people who would be the potential buyers for this house, which, by the way, also features a helipad. So did I, what, did I understand correctly when I read the story that he, he is going to include $30 million worth of cars with this property? Is yes. that, is that, yes. wow. That and is now a helipad. correct. There, there are a handful of uh, remarkable uh, exotic cars that are indeed included in the, uh, in the sale. There's a bowling alley. Um, well, as you said, the movie theater, it is absolutely beyond. The views are incredible. It just sits up on this beautiful pad in in Bel Air. And, you know, Bel Air, Beverly Hills, and Holmby Hills are the three neighborhoods that make up the most exclusive areas in Los Angeles. They're referred to as the Platinum Triangle, as I'm sure you can imagine. I, I can imagine. And I also wanted to ask you, you know, I've noticed recently that there seem to be several spec homes currently being built in Bel Air. Is there a particular reason for that? Because, you know, spec homes uh, are kind of risky, I would think, these days in any city because it, it, it just is if you're not building for a specific buyer. Uh, so why the spec home, um, I guess, phenomenon in, in, in Bel Air? What's that about these days? Well, I think perhaps what it's about is uh, developers uh, taking a gamble on the successful high-end real estate that's already been selling in this Platinum Triangle. Even just in the last five years, we've Mm -hmm. had a handful of incredible sales. You've got, uh, back in 2011, the heiress to Formula One, Petra Eccleston uh, Stunt, Mm bought the uh, Spelling Manor, um, Aaron and Candy Spelling, for $85 million in cash. That was in 2011. Uh, Did quite a bit of upgrades and is now asking $200 million. The Playboy Mansion uh, just recently listed for $200 million and actually ended up selling for $100 million to the um, uh, co-owner of the Hostess uh, Twinkie brand. 
And you've got many examples of this in the last several years. There's a beautiful estate called Owlwood, which was originally the home of Sonny and Cher, that just last year listed for $150 million and eventually sold for $90 million to a developer. Who knows what he's going to do with that? And another example, there's a spec house that was once owned by Streisand that last year was sold for $100 million to Tom Gores, who's the uh, owner of the Detroit Pistons. And that was a very interesting deal. He purchased it with a combination of cash and land. So I think that these developers are building on this growing uh, history of these properties that are selling. But if you notice, they're selling from anywhere of only maybe 50 to 75% of their asking prices. So it will be very interesting to see how much of the $250 million Mr. Mikowski actually achieves for this uh, spectacular one-of-a-kind home. It certainly seems that way, and 50 to 75% of value is interesting because here in New York City, of course, uh, we're selling most properties these days, luxury or not, for less than the asking prices. And I, I don't know that it's 50% less, but certainly in the 70 to 75% category. What then, uh, Denise, in your opinion, is the current status of the real estate market in Los Angeles? You know, uh, exempting, of course, the, the Uber, you know, $250 million mansions. How is the rest of the marketplace out there? Well, for instance, the, the, the median home price right now in Beverly Hills alone is $2.5 million. Um, but that having been said, the, the current status of the real estate market I'm finding is a bit of a mixed bag. And I've been seeing that uh, since about the middle of last year. It continues to go up. Um, I do not personally believe there's a bubble, but it does seem that with uh, only maybe four months of inventory on the market, uh, you know, it, it, it does continue to be a seller's market, but there are certain... Uh, areas of the LA market where things are still selling very quickly at or over the asking prices, but there are also some areas where the days on market is building into a longer time. And um, for your listeners, by months of inventory on market, what that means is if nothing else came on the market, how long would it take for everything that's currently listed to be bought and absorbed. So four months is still definitely an indication of a seller's market. Mm, interesting. What, what, what would become then the hot neighborhoods? You mentioned that there are some areas in Los Angeles that are hotter than others where things are selling faster than others. Where, where would they be? Well, the latest hottest neighborhoods are neighborhoods that we are pushing into because so many of the already established neighborhoods are unachievable for so many people. And I'm sure you can relate to that. We see that in New York where we've pushed from, you know, Chelsea into Hell's Kitchen into, you know, what's now the High Line up into Harlem, et cetera. Wow. And so here in Los Angeles, we're seeing that in areas in East Los Angeles such as Glassell Park, um, areas south like uh, West Adams, areas that previously uh, you wouldn't oh think of for homes. West Adams, really? Yes, can you? Yes, exactly. There are homes there that that <sighs> people are just running after to claim, whether they be fixers or in good condition, because they're really the only uh, fairly well priced houses for. Uh, 
someone who is just making their first entree into the market. Here, uh, you know, certainly as we talked about in Beverly Hills, um, prices are very high. Here where I live in West Hollywood, it's difficult to, uh, to get a good home, you know, under a million. The median price here is just over a million. Wow. I have to say something about West Adams. This is just a little family history here. When my family moved to Los Angeles during the Depression from New Orleans, they moved to the West Adams neighborhood. And that was a pretty established neighborhood during the Depression. But when that neighborhood started to change, uh, it moved, the people who lived there basically moved to what is now the flats of Beverly Hills mm. around yeah. Olympic, Doheny, that area. Mm-hmm. So I just right. find, and a lot of my family still lives there, I just find that very interesting. So if we want to compare this to New York, it's like people moving during the Depression to Morningside Heights, to Washington Heights, and mm-hmm. then in mm-hmm. the uh, 60s, 70s, people moving away from those areas, and now like everyone's moving back there and thinking how exciting it is. Right. Wow. Exactly. It, it, it's very interesting, but we have to leave it it's right there. It's enjoying a renaissance. Den- okay. Denise yeah. Rosner, Keller Williams, Beverly Hills, and New York City. You can be in touch with Denise at denise at deniserosner.com. We will be right back. Thanks, Denise. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Vince. Bye. Bye. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Real estate is bigger than a transaction. It's about transformation. Working with so many people over the years, I see that living in the right home allows you to flourish. And so, you know, when you're buying or selling, it's also really about starting the next chapter in your life. It's about deciding who you want to be and how you want to live. And for me, this is what I find fulfilling, helping my clients make profound change. I'm Karen Ringler with Core, and this is what I do. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back, and I'm especially excited to talk to Richard Lorenzen this morning. He is an American entrepreneur, investor, and speaker. He is the founder and CEO of the New York public relations firm Fifth Avenue Brands. The firm focuses on media uh, media relations, serving the tech, finance, and policy spaces. He is regularly, regularly cited as one of the most influential millennial entrepreneurs in America, you see? That's amazing. LinkedIn recently named Richard one of the top millennial 
millennial influencers of 2016, while Entrepreneur Magazine ranked him one of the top 50 people in the digital marketing, and Inc. Magazine ranked him one of the top eight entrepreneurs on Twitter. Well, he clearly knows how to get PR for himself. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly, that's true. Congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. Richard is regularly featured by Forbes, Fox News, Business Insider, and Inc. Magazine, and is a contributor to Huffington Post and the Entrepreneur Magazine. He now spends significant time speaking worldwide to audiences ranging from schools to executive conferences about entrepreneurship. In 2016, Richard released his book, Surge, Supercharge Your Life, Business and Legacy, aimed at teaching business and personal development principles to entrepreneurs. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to him today, Richard also worked with us promoting our show for the first, I think, two years of our three-year legacy here. So, Richard, welcome and nice to see you. I know, three years is amazing. (laughs) Welcome back. It's good to be back in the studio. Yeah, I know. Interesting. So if you are an entrepreneur and an aspiring or an aspiring entrepreneur, this book is for you. You have become well known for having started your company at the age of 15, now at the age of 25, and the founder and CEO of one of New York's fastest growing public relations firms. You advise some of today's most well-known influencers and brands. Tell us about that. I want everybody to download and buy the book, but tell us about you know what your message really is with regard to this book. Well, I a couple of years ago, I started speaking at a lot of high schools and a lot of colleges about entrepreneurship. And what I found was that there were a ton of students who wanted to start their own business or they wanted to become an entrepreneur. And they didn't really have somebody who was relatable in kind of like their own age range who mm-hmm. could, they could talk to about it and who they could actually learn from. So that that's kind of where the idea of writing the book came from. Um, you know, I, I wanted to create something that was about how I did it. And it's kind of I tried to create like a practical guide about how I did it, how I did it when I was only 15 years old, um, to kind of give a resource to to people, to young people like that who wanted to start their own business as well. So well, you know you're you're a young entrepreneur um, and you're in your home dreaming about you know wanting to establish a business and it could be finance and tech it could be anything so you know where does one start I mean how does one put together a a plan in their mind with how do I do this I want to be a big you know company owner or you know Mm -hmm. a big you know business person how do we do this so I was a computer nerd Um, when I first started I wanted to become a real estate developer which is I guess is kind of how I got involved with working with with real estate firms I wanted to be in real estate and I wanted to buy buildings, and I wanted to do that whole thing. And I was 15 years old, and I, you know, you learn very quickly that you can't buy a building when you're 15 years old. <laughs> so I realized that I had to find well, something some else. Able to. Could, <laughs> you could dream. So I, I realized that I had to find something else that I could start. And I was a little bit of a computer nerd. I liked to read books. I had I had the internet. I had a computer, um, my parents' computer. It was dial up like AOL back then. Absolutely. Um, so that's what I had, and I realized, you know, I could try to start something with with what I already had. Um, so I started teaching myself how to code, how to how to build websites, um, how to do search engine optimization, how to market websites, and that's kind of how it started. And I started selling that as a service to other local businesses. Um, and this was pre like Facebook. This was this was like putting like ads up on Craigslist for web design services and working with like local businesses and things like that. Very very grassroots. Um, so very, very grassroots, yeah. very organic. We started very small, um, and that's kind of how it all started. And and you know I started getting a couple local customers, very small customers, and I realized I might be able to make a business out of it. And that's. <laughs> 
So starting at zero, you know, like I tell people all the time about this radio show, when people say, well, you know, you know, how many listeners do you have, whatever. And I always say, you know, you start at zero. Day one, yep. I don't know if anybody listened. You know, day one, I don't know if anybody, any of us knew what we were doing. But, you know, you take it from, you know, from zero and you and you build it to, you know, where you want it to be. Um, how hard is that, though? Because, I mean, you know, the, the beginnings of, of any uh, business is always difficult, but how, how, you know, how long does it take to get to a point where you know you're successful or you know that your brand, whatever it is, is tried and true and is going to stick around for the long haul? Because that, that's, that's not easy. It's not easy to accomplish. I, I think it's time. Um, you know, everything takes time. It took us, you know, everybody looks at what I've done now and I'm 25 years old and, and it took me 10 years to do it. So I think, you know, there's no such thing as an overnight success. It took me 10 years to be an overnight mm-hmm. success at 25 mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there's really no, you know, it's time, it's persistence. Um, you know, you have to you have to figure out what you want to do and stick to it for a really long time. And if you stick to it long enough, I've seen businesses with crappy products become successful just mm-hmm. because the founder stayed in the box long enough and mm-hmm. they stuck to it. And right. I saw businesses that were great ideas with a lot of venture backing behind them fail just because they threw in the towel too soon. So I, I really do think it's time. It's a lot of other things too. It's you know you have you have to learn. There's mentors. These all these all these different things. But I think more than anything, what separates the people who made it from the people who didn't was time. So true. As I mentioned in the intro, you write a lot of articles and I read all of them. You wrote one back in January about making 2017 better than 2016. Tell us how you are doing that and what we all can do to accomplish the same goal. I mean, we all want to be better the next year, but so what is mm-hmm. what is your thinking on this? I've always been really big on setting goals for myself. So that's kind of like, I guess I've always been kind of like a personal development junkie, I guess you could call it a personal development buff. So I've always, I've always like setting goals for myself and seeing how far I could go. Um, so what I do is I sit down with a piece of paper every year and I kind of jot down the different areas of my life, whether it's a finance, business, travel, whatever, whatever you like to do, whatever your interests are. And I think about, you know, what I want to do in those areas and what would make the next year, you know, the best year I've had yet and what I could do. And I just write down whatever comes to mind and then I kind of weed through and I choose like the three or four top goals that really mean the most to me and make the biggest impact. And then I actually start out writing a plan for those goals and breaking it down by month, by week, by day, what I have to do to actually achieve them. So what a wise uh, old professor used to tell us in class many years ago, if you don't write it down, it isn't going to happen. Write your goals down and, and, you know, through the years as I've managed people, whether it was in technology or in real estate, I would always tell them the same thing. Write it down. Yep. If you don't write it down and look at it periodically, right. it isn't going to happen. If you do nothing else, write it down. There were a lot of goals that I wrote down years ago that I didn't even put mm-hmm. a plan into place to implement. But looking back, I'll find like an old journal or an old notebook yep. and I'll look back at what I wrote down. And I've done almost 90% of those things without even thinking about it. I think it's just from writing it down. You know my part, my business partner Shane. He writes everything down, whether they're goals at the beginning of the year or whatever. He keeps a notebook that you know. I used to think I was great at keeping notebooks, but he's amazing at writing stuff down. And again, if you don't write it down, you're not going to do it. You're not mm-hmm. going to remember it. And you know, I can scribble on a piece of paper, lose the piece of paper. I'm not. I got to get myself back into that notebook um, scenario. Because uh, it does work. I, I, this is taken out of context, but you, you, there's a quote in one of your articles that says, "Stop making excuses." What was that uh, uh, all about? I mean, if you want to be successful, uh, you know, you've got to just do it and mm-hmm. and stop making excuses. Is that what you meant by that? Yeah. Well, 
you know, we have a lot of people that come to us, whether it's companies that come to us every day looking to do PR, and we have a lot of startups and new companies that come to us, or just people that, that write in because they read my book or they saw me talk somewhere, people who are young, students who are looking to start a business. We have a lot of people write in and they, and they talk about the ideas that they have and how they're going to build the next Facebook, or they're going to build the next Uber. And everybody has these big plans about how they're going to build a billion dollar company and, and what they're going to do and, and why they're the next big thing. And 90% of them don't make it. And when you go back to them a year later and you realize that, you know, whatever it did, they never ended up doing it or they never even ended up, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't make it. Um, and you go back to them and you talk to them a year later and they give you this list of reasons why it was the economy, it was the president, it was politics, it was my, you know, my, my parents did it to me, this, I didn't have money in the bank, I didn't go to college. So everybody has 10, 15 different reasons why they didn't do something. And I think, you know, if you look at the people who have become the most successful, they've all overcome something, you know, absolutely. And failure is an equal, I always say that failure and, and opportunity are equal opportunity employers. Mm-hmm. Everybody is facing some kind of problem. Everybody faces the same crap sooner or later. So I think it, it's how you handle it. it. It's how, you know, how you make up your mind that you're actually going to do this. And, you know, no matter what kind of obstacles you face, you'll overcome them. Um, so that, that's where that kind of came from. I have a question for Richard. Um, so speaking of, I'm so curious, like you're 15 years old. What sort of influence did your parents have in terms of your success and, mm, and challenges? Because it's not failure. It's like I'm, I'm a big proponent of celebrate failure because that mm. means you at least tried, you know, and then learn from that. And don't anything that follows the word but you need to really pay attention to, and say, how can I remove this from my vocabulary? Because that's the excuse that's keeping you from getting to the next level, mm-hmm. right? So it's always, it just makes me so curious to say, see, like, whether it was that your parents created challenges or supported you, but what was the formula that sort of gave you the ability to do what you did at 15? You know, I think what it was is my parents, they always they always instilled in me the habit of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was a writer. She's a big reader. So I, I always loved reading growing up. Yeah. And when I was a teenager and I became interested in entrepreneurship, I started going to the library and reading every book that I could find about entrepreneurship, about sales, about marketing. And that was kind of what sparked it for me. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing how much is out there in the world. So I, I really think it was reading. That's what you know opened up my world. Um, so if nothing else, you know, getting that instilled as a habit from a very young age that, that changed everything. Yeah. Cool. We have a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you about social media, you know, because back 10 years ago, social media wasn't what it is today, if it even existed back then in, in, in smaller, you know, avenues. <laughs> what, what, what do you tell, you know, the entrepreneur today or the person who's trying to s- establish a business today uh, about social media? Does it help? Does it not help? Where are we with all that? Oh, absolutely, it helps. I, I know people who have built one of my close friends built a $20 million business just from Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook. It absolutely helps. You have to know, obviously, how to use it. And that, that comes with a combination of experimenting and, and trial and failure and, and being able to learn from other companies who do it well. But it, it, it's absolutely, you can't ignore it. No. You know, you, you can't you can't ignore it. It's, it. it's really powerful if you use it the right way. You don't need to use it to build a business. I've seen people in other sectors that are still building companies, believe it or not, and they're not on Facebook Live. Um, but if you're going to be in tech or, you know, it's, it's a very powerful thing to use to build a business. I also think that one of the main reasons so many millennials are such entrepreneurs these days, instead of being part of corporate, you mm-hmm. know, um, yeah. industries or corporate companies is because of social media, right. you know, look at someone like, 
I, I actually did the same thing. Like as Richard. You. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> Richard. Uh, two years ago, I went back to my alma mater and did an entrepreneurial, you know, speed, just talk about once I started to get noticed on real estate. And everyone kept asking me, what outlets do you use? What should I put stuff on? And I was like, use as much as you can because mm-hmm. look at people like Justin Bieber, who yep. was founded by YouTube, Amazing. or something like Kim Kardashian built her career on, right. on what? You know, Twitter. And, and she, from that, like the Kardashians built this company called Lumi, which is an mm-hmm. iPhone case that yep. they just started on social media. I mean, yep. it's amazing. You know what it is? I What I always say when I speak at schools, I, I know we're running out of time too, but I always say that social media and technology leveled the playing field like never before. It's never been mm-hmm. easier and cheaper to start a business. It's still really hard, but it's never been easier because you can compete all over the world from I was competing for clients all over the world from my parents' home when I was 15 years old. Yeah. So it, it's never been easier. It's it's never been more accessible to anybody, no matter what your budget and background is. It's also become more competitive and globalized because of it. Um, but it it totally leveled the playing field, mm-hmm. and you know, it's 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 breaking down the institutions and the establishments. It's 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 quite amazing um, how it continues to evolve, and where we were 10 years ago, five years ago, and where we are today. It's amazing. The book is Surge, Supercharge Your Life, Business, and Legacy. The author is Richard Lorenzen, and he is CEO of Fifth Avenue Brands here uh, uh, in New York. Richard, thank you for being here, and come back and see us again. Thank you, Vince. We will be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back, and I have my panel with me, uh, Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, Peru Brumbat from Compass, and Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential. Richard is here as well. 
All right, we're going to get on to some hot topics. Unless you have lots of cash, uh, it's notoriously difficult to find an apartment in New York City that includes every item on your wish list. If you're on a budget, it's often a matter of some tricky prioritizing. Does size matter to you more than location? Are you willing to give up conveniences that would be a given elsewhere, like laundry facilities and a dishwasher for more uh, reasonable monthly rent? Willing to grin and bear it when upstairs neighbors wake you up uh, with their late night furniture rearranging, which mine does occasionally, because you get to live close to great bars and restaurants. It's inevitable for most New Yorkers to end up with some kind of quirk to their apartment that drives them crazy. So my question is, what do you hear from your buyers on this at the start of their search and after they move in? If they, you know, move into, say, a noisy neighbor upstairs. I mean, do you do you get feedback from... You, you started saying, um, you know, unless you have like this crazy budget. And the first thing that made me think of is this was about 10 years ago while Richard was starting his first business. I was probably selling my first <laughs> first reel of property. But uh, he, I um, had this buyer who had a budget of $25 million, which was at the time that was like a $50 million budget now. And... Um, it, the only requirement that he had, like, well, certain locations and things, but one of the biggest things that he wanted was he really wanted a pool, a private pool, whether it was on his terrace, on a penthouse, or whether it was a townhouse. He was so open, but anyway, long story short, got him an incredible townhouse in the West Village, 34 feet wide, which is very wide for wow. those of you who are listening. Um, double facade. It was a landscape Greek revival facade on the outside and then an all glass one with like a, a roof that um, opened completely um, into like an open outdoor space oh, for the nice. whole whole townhouse. So, I mean, spectacular place. But guess what it did not have? A pool. <laughs> so at any given price point in this town, you are generally going to make a compromise no matter how much money you have. But but the onset when we're when we're working with buyers, whether they're the first time you're working with them or you know repeat business with them, do they have a list of requirements that they ask for? Uh, and you know because people in the suburbs tell me that you know buying houses is a little easier. You know they might request a certain location, mm-hmm. a certain uh, neighborhood. But I think here in New York, when you're buying an apartment, I think the list of requirements becomes a little longer than it maybe should be. I think that, I mean, most of my clients, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like most clients in general in New York City, they they have their wants and then they have their deal breakers. Yep. And I think that wants are always things that can be, just like Pearl said with her pool, can be <laughs> overlooked if the place is perfect and they walk in and they get mm-hmm. that feeling. Um, I really like when... You know, on a more realistic sense, on a $25 million, you know, level. But one of my clients recently who was just open to both resales and new developments, we were looking at pre-war and post-war and just brand new products. Um, We wound up purchasing a new development because every time he would go to a pre-war apartment, he loved the details and he loved everything about it a lot more than the new. But he would always say, I hate that sometimes the floor creaks. And <laughs> well, and I loved I love every single time we'd go to a pre-war. Every single time, no matter when, yeah, <laughs> no matter but that's, what but time that's, of day, yeah, that's, that's part of the charm yeah, exactly. character. Yeah, exactly. But so it just shows my you. floor creaks. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone has a list, and what I do, especially when I'm working with millennials, when they're first-time buyers. No, this is this is good because millennials like to be in charge. They like to do their own homework. So I give them a list, and I say for three weeks. I want you to hit the open houses on your own. You could do your own homework. You could find your own open houses. 
but this is what I want you to do. I want you to look in your price range and then I want you to look a few hundred thousand dollars above your price range. And I give them, depending what their budget is, sometimes it's a million above, sometimes a few hundred thousand dollars above. Because I say to them, I want you to see what is real and what is a fantasy. And they love it because they think it's a game. Mm-hmm. And it is, but it's also reality. And then after three weeks, we're going to reconvene. We usually go out for lunch or coffee, whatever their timetable is. And they are so thrilled because then they have changed their list. Speaking of millennials and, and Richard, so mm-hmm. successful people and millennials, and or Matthew. just a mixture or of successful both. millennials. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. One of my most successful millennials, we recently closed a month ago in Tribeca, and he only wanted Tribeca. And to Deb's point, mm-hmm. he said to me, I need a view. I don't, I don't care what it is. I just need it. I can't live looking at a, at your a wall. Your neighbor? And, right, <laughs> exactly. Or looking neighbor? at the neighbor <laughs> getting undressed. Um, he And I said to him, I was like, in your price range, it's going to be a little hard in Tribeca, especially. You know, we're still talking millions, but it's going to be hard getting that major view. Um, we wound up closing on an apartment that had absolutely no view, but it was such a lofty space. He got over it mm-hmm. because he played the game. Yeah. Yeah. I have a funny story several mm-hmm. years ago. Well, a, a long time ago. It was like, I don't know, I was in the business a few years. And I had uh, a buyer couple who their only requirement really was they wanted to be on the top floor of whatever building we ended up in because they didn't want anybody walking over their head. Um, and I, I get, get that. that. I get mm, that. I and, get that. And yeah. so, you know, we looked and they're a lovely, lovely couple. So three months after they closed, um, they had a major water leak because they were on the top floor. And the ceiling came <laughs> crashing down. Oh, no. And they called me. And they were laughing about it. But they but, said, yeah. you <laughs> see, we, we didn't want anybody walking on our head. And I said, yeah, and you got a roof leak. <laughs> so there's always something yeah. out there when you're working with people. and Which you can get in the house also. You know what? And I think, ha- yes. Absolutely. I, I think one of the most important things to point out also is people think that they're so sure about what they want. Um, but... But most of the times they're not. And, you know, we've all, I'm sure, have had examples on the opposite end when people are so insistent that this is what they want, this is what they want, this is what they want. And then someday when, and then, and you were really working to their criteria. And then one day they go out to look at something that it was completely, absolutely the opposite of all the requirements they wrote down. And they went and looked at it and found it and bought it, you know? Mm-hmm. So those happen as well. So I think that a lot of times, Really, it's very important to just focus on the deal breakers because those people are much more definitive about and then everything else just to show them variety even when they aren't asking for it and let them figure out what their choices really are once they kind of assess it from a point of view of being a real buyer. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. I completely agree with Parole. She's one of my closest friends. And I also <laughs> think that she's an amazing broker. So I, I of course, <laughs> I always agree. But um, <laughs> the, the biggest thing I always tell, especially a first-time buyer, they judge so much on the listing online, especially the mm-hmm. photos. And I'll, I'll say to them, if it is in your range, if it looks great, it's worth checking out because you never know how much different it's going to be in person. Mm-hmm. So keep an open mind. Well, that's why it becomes, I think, very, um, very important for, for listing agents when you're putting a new property up to make sure you are representing that property well. The text has to be you know, in line with what the apartment has feature-wise. Um, you know, somebody dinged me the other day. It's not my listing, but one of my buyers said to me, well, you know, they're representing that there's Fios in the building. There really isn't. I said, well, that's misrepresentation. Right. And, you know, it's in the text. And so I will speak to the, the I mean, do you want the apartment or not? I get it. But, you know, you're not going to not buy it because it doesn't have Fios. But they're a Fios user, and they wanted to continue with that. And so they agreed to see this particular listing because, 
it said the building had the capability. Now, what the agent really meant to say was it's it's coming. We're pre-wired or whatever, but it's not there mm-hmm. yet. And so, but don't real. advertise it. You know, and don't let's be real. Your client should just and only be watching Shit's Creek on Netflix because it's the best show of all time. <laughs> no Fios needed. No Fios needed. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Fios lover. I, I have time more to cable. But also, you know, Matt and I were talking about this right before the show started and how certain brokers will, whichever photos they put up, they will put up, I don't know, we were talking about how we like put mediocre up- mediocre photos. Yeah, mediocre photos, which will not show the best features of not the apartments. Good. I and just we think were, that's a lack yeah. of clarification of the goal of what the pictures are supposed to do for them. And exactly. I, you know, like, or certain brokers post 17 pictures of a one-bedroom apartment, and you say, right. you know what, the whole point of the picture is to get people to come see the place right. and not overblow the picture so that they're disappointed when they're in the space, nor um, make it look so shabby that people discount seeing the place in the first place. But to Matt's earlier point, I think, you know, one of the also important things, speaking of the world of social media and judging books by their covers and people saying yay or nay on apartments just based on pictures, I think one of the most important things is I think we've forgotten that spaces have a feel, you know, Mm -hmm. a place has a feel, an apartment has a feel, a building has a feel that you cannot get from a picture. And so it is exceptionally important to look at floor plans. And if the floor plan looks like something that could work for you and then the aesthetic looks like it could be in your ballpark to actually go and feel the space yourself, it's worth the time. I, I am a big believer in that. And I'm all about a floor plan. I don't really even care to see a picture because nine times out of ten, it's got furniture that I don't like and it just kind of distracts me. But a floor plan does it for me. And then certainly, as you say, Peru, when you're when you're visiting the apartment, it's all about how it feels. It's about you know the charm, mm-hmm. the character, the the aesthetic, the whatever. It's how it feels, and mm-hmm. that's why I say sometimes when people get hung up on square footage, oh well, you know, I I absolutely need twelve hundred square feet, and you show them something that's eleven hundred or ten fifty, and they immediately put the wall up and say, no, 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 this is too small. Well, why is it too small? And from a know- visual perspective, it works. Right? And it's about layout again. Right. It's about layout because absolutely you, feet, square feet can be utilized so differently. Where in nine hundred square feet, you could actually have a two bedroom and like with a small second bedroom or den Absolutely. and look amazing and you could have you know an 850 square foot one bedroom that does not function anything grander than a one bedroom period you so never know you never where know. the wasted space is going to be yeah you just saying. don't know and, and also to the point many of times what, it's in closets right and what or the, hallways to the point of what parole was saying with photos i mean if you look at the top top brokers in the city like leonard seinberg nikki fields frederick eklund these people are very known actually for having an aesthetic photo usually is one of the leading photos of their listing Mm -hmm. and that's because you want something that's really pretty that captures your eye to bring you in Mm -hmm. and look at the floor plan and to make you good right and to to look at the net the next picture and more importantly to look at the floor plan that's a very good um, uh, an assessment. It's very it's 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 key. And you know, sometimes I get really irritated when I'm looking at you know listings for for buyers or even renters, and you're looking at just horrible photographs. And I'm like, well, you know, where you know what? Why is this? And who's really paying attention to this? Because it's not going to get any interest. And In people fact, are it's go right detracting it. from your end goals. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. I had a manager a number of years ago who used to scream at us at a big firm and say, no, toilet shots. <laughs> but the reason she did that was because one broker, who was a very well-known broker, said, 
but this toilet cost over $1,000 and people are going to want it in, in that tone of voice. And it was pretty comical, but she really thought that was a selling point. All right, we have to leave it there. We are going to take a break. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Selling or buying a home is pretty emotional for most people, and it's often their most valuable asset. I'm sensitive to those emotions, so I try to make an often difficult task as easy and efficient as possible. Clients have described me as smart, approachable, even wise, although my kids would argue with that last one. In a word, they trust me. One recently wrote a testimonial saying, good, better, Henry Hershkowitz. That summed it all up and put a smile on my face. I'm Henry Hershkowitz with CORE, and this is what I do. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com. listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back, and I'm talking to Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, Perul Brumbat from Compass, Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential. All right, so in the last 10 years, the New York City real estate market has been on a roller coaster. There was uh, the real estate boom of 2006, the Great Recession of 2008, the Great Comeback at the end of 2010, and the subsequent boom of 2013, and more recently, the Great Leveling Out of 2016. What has been your experience through the years given very different markets in this 10-year period? We all talk about real estate having cycles you know, we've gone from booms to bust to recessions to this or that. Where are we today? I know we, we beat this subject to death, but everybody asks all the time, where are we? And what has your experience has been over this uh, last 10-year cycle? I can tell you for mine, it's been literally like a roller coaster. And you like to think that everything is consistent and real estate should be consistent, but in fact, it isn't. So over 10 years, where where are we? Well, first of all, I think that the, you know, I don't know what the stats are from, but I think that the boom um, was actually 2015. I think I think 2015 saw some of the highest numbers we've ever seen. Um, it, but funny enough, I had 
lunch, two lunches last week with two of the biggest brokers, in my opinion, who I'm very close with in our industry. And we both were talking about how much we like what's going on with our market right now, because instead of it leveling in general and instead of it, you know, taking a huge hit or, you know, having a huge boom and having a huge surge, it's actually leveling in different areas. And that, that makes our job more interesting. That makes, you know, our clients think about things more, which then, in, you know, increases the diversity of what we do. I think, you know, right now I'm at least seeing a lot of, um, not uncertainty, but slowness in the downtown, certain downtown areas, not all of downtown. Um, you know, specifically, Tribeca is just moving a little slower. There was a time, you know, last year and the year before when you would put something new on the market. Neighborhoods are like that, yeah. And it would, it would sell in a week. And now it's taking the typical, you know, month and a half to two months to get into contract. Whereas, you know, now if you look at uptown markets like the Upper East, especially with the Second Army Subway and the Upper West and and specifically Harlem, things are flying. So I think that, you know, as things move forward, if, you know, depending on what happens with Trump and his policies and depending on what happens with um, the stock market and the bond market and how that affects mortgages, um, I think if it consistently you know, flattens or even decreases a little bit. I think we will see what's going on downtown start to move uptown. Matt, let me ask you something. Actually, for all of you, you know, you mentioned Tribeca as a neighborhood, but do you think that the price points downtown, uh, the higher price points downtown are the real reason? Because Mm -hmm. I think we are stuck in the mud. I have a $2.1 million listing that I say is stuck in the mud and for four months, okay? So I think, you know, anywhere from, say, two to three, three and a half, maybe four, that market seems to be dragging and seems to be struggling. I'm noticing that, you know, up to a million or up to a million five, things are moving very quickly. So do you think that that price point of two plus million has anything to do with it? I don't think think it's it's price point as much as it is price per square foot and the price value of the actual unit whatever it might be. So if it's priced well at just about any given price point, I feel like it's moving. I do think that a little bit of the higher-ish end, like the higher-ish being like 7 to 10 million, 12 million is is definitely a little slower. Um, But even that's in pockets. Mm. So I do think that it has to do so much more with kind of like what you're getting for any chunk of money than it is about... um, an actual sort of, I actually think that the market is kind of an interestingly almost like I, I feel like it's like a it's it's somewhat ba- it's a somewhat balanced market I feel uh, because it's not such a strong seller's market it's not everybody sitting on the sidelines market um, I think that there's just a lot of like opportunity there's some things that are overpriced there's a bargainers market scenario where if people are willing to make deals um, I think both sellers and buyers especially the buyers are extremely well educated in today's market um, so it it's actually kind of to Matt's point I think it's a really great market to work in because it's got many flavors and colors and pockets of things going on, but it's not a boom or a bust. Mm. And I actually prefer this because it seems like, you know, like a regular, something that you can work with and figure out where the right moves are and what the right deals are and you can actually make them happen. I've, you know? I've said that for years. Yeah. That this is the kind of market that I like Me too. to work in because it's, it's if you could use the word normal, yeah. it's a normal mm-hmm. marketplace. Right. Yeah. You know, when you're in uh, zooming and booming, overbidding and, and, and you know, uh, bidding wars, it, it becomes 
daunting and the buyers get crazed. And, you know, through the years, I've lost several buyers, meaning they've just put their searches on hold because mm-hmm. they've lost two or three apartments yeah. in a crazy wild market that they just get so fed up and so disgusted they want to just move on. Right. It's, it's, go, it's awful. But to go back to what Perul said, I think, you know, first of all, I love I love the word flavors um, <laughs> for our, our market and what we do. It definitely does have flavors. Um, yeah. But I, uh, you know, I agree with almost everything that you said, except I, I really do feel strongly that we're not in a market anywhere anymore where things are based on price per square foot. I actually yeah. think that mm-hmm. that's really gone so out too. the window. I think mm-hmm. I actually just had a conversation with one of my sellers about this this morning um, before we were on the air that, you know, in the age of 157, that was a price per square foot market. And that is what everyone harped on um, when resales were just booming and surging at 15 Central Park West. That was a price per square foot market. I think that Mm -hmm. nowadays you see, you know, these kind of pockets and these sectors of the industry, like, you know, a two bedroom, which is a very general thing, I would say. In Tribeca, for example, like we were saying, um, you know, for new development, it used to be under 3 million. That was like a very strong two-bedroom sellout. And now these new developments in Tribeca, they're coming on the market in, you know, over 4 million, um, anywhere up to 6 million for a two-bedroom. And that's because they're doing per square foot. But what doesn't work is that just because the apartment's a little bit bigger, it's still a two-bedroom. It still has like a tiny office alcove, which can barely be used. And I think these developers need to understand that. And what actually truly i feel proves that point is a project like 100 barkley which is selling incredibly well that's because their prices are more in line with where our market is and if they're not the developer is truly negotiating um and so when you have a neighborhood like tribeca where you have a bunch of new developments at once and only one of them you have apartments going into contract that obviously says something well, you know, but developers just like sellers, individual sellers, you know, in an apartment scenario, they need to be taught a lesson too. Your point is well taken, Matt. But you know, at the end of the day, I think there's still I think there's still concerns with price per square foot because it really seems to be all across the board. I mean you you see developments downtown at four thousand dollars a foot, you see developments at you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, one hundred dollars a foot. So it's not a consistent. You know, here's where we are. Mm-mm. This is what it is for all new development. I still see a lot of disparity in in prices per square mm-hmm. foot. You know, you can argue. Mm-hmm. All right, a two bedroom is a two bedroom is a two bedroom. Is it worth four or six million dollars? Uh, you know, that's uh, in the eye of the of the buyer. You know. Okay, but right now, you know, we're talking about the luxury market, which is really the top ten percent of the market. Let's Correct. let's scale it down a little bit. And I'm thinking about 2009, which was really the heart of the recession. Forget really low, low, low prices. But I think 2017 is for real people. 2009 was yeah, for real I people. Agree. It was a great year for me. Let's talk about the under 3 million market. We're not talking about price per square foot. We're talking about real people. People move when they have to move. We're not mm-hmm. talking about investors unless Absolutely. they have to sell their second or third home or investment home because they're having financial problems. That was 2009. 2017, people have been holding on for a while thinking, well, I've been looking. I want to move up. I want to move down. But there's nothing out there because people are holding on to their homes. Now people are getting serious. The serious buyers are out there. The sellers that I'm seeing from $3 million and under are saying, you know what? I think we're at the height of the market now. If I wait on wait another two years, I'm not going to get top of the market. And slowly, three million and under people are starting to see now is the time I've got to put my apartment on the market. 
So for people like me who gauge that market and watch it every day, anything north of 14th Street, which is my wheelhouse, um, the apartments are coming on the market. And many of them are flying off the shelves if they're priced right, if people are not being greedy, and if people are being realistic. I think what mm-hmm. I meant what I meant when I said per, about it, it's the price per square foot, what I meant is for the appropriate product and how it is priced. So, you know, I think Deborah brought up a really important point, which is, you know, this city tends to be categorized. There tends to be one market segment that seems to be sort of the overarching point of point of focus, um, generally speaking, as we ebb and flow through the market. Of course, it's always a tale of many different sort of price points in market segments. But like the, you know, to, to say, you know, the, the time of the one West 57th, that was like this big billionaire's row boom. That was really sort of driving, that was what was really driving the market space. And that sort of a mindset right now, it seems that every single category of the market is busy and it's buzzing. Um, but people, it's all about whether your apartment is priced properly and in a value-based way in accordance to its own market space. All right, we have to leave it there. We are out of time. That is the show for this week. Thanks to my guest, Richard, and the panel, as always, here's hoping that you make this a great week, and I look forward to being right back here next week with all of you. Be kind to one another. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining us. Uh, We'll see you next week, and have a great day. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.